and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Welcome to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. I'm Karina Jagger, and I'm your host. Today, we're going to talk about stress, but not in the way you might think. So often, stress is thought of as our individual experience, the pressure we're under at work or home, and our response to it. And many of us are under enormous pressure. There are classes and meditation and yoga for busy people to squeeze in to learn how to manage the financial, social, professional, and other demands of life under late capitalism. Anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer knows we're told to manage our stress, but sometimes it feels like a looming threat. Manage your stress or your cancer can come back. It's a heavy burden that can make us feel bad about feeling bad. And sometimes it feels like another way to blame the victim. But cancer isn't our fault, even if we don't always have the right attitude or stay positive. And I am really pleased to have Dr. Lauren Elman join me today to talk about stress. Lauren is an associate professor at Temple University's psychology department. Her lab focuses on examining genetic and environmental factors that contribute to the development of schizophrenia, depression, and other mental health disorders. Her research focuses on two sensitive periods of development, the prenatal period and adolescence. And that's how Lauren's work came to my attention. We're working together on a research project funded by the California Breast Cancer Research Program on adverse childhood events and breast cancer risk. We'll talk more about that later. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. So let's just begin by talking about your research and how you started studying this topic, uh, broadly what you've learned. Well, I originally started my research career actually studying infants. Um, My first research experiences were studying infant attachment and other processes involved in infant development and how that could affect the course of development. And then I moved a little bit earlier to the prenatal period and started thinking about how experiences that women have during pregnancy can actually be translated biologically to the fetus to affect fetal development and then subsequently later development after uh, the baby is born. And that's a portion of what my lab has been focusing on for, I guess, the last 20-some years. That's what I've been focusing on. Uh, And we have a number of findings that have linked not only stress, but also um, ways that stress affects the body. So the ways that stress affects the immune system, um, specifically something called inflammation, how stress and inflammation during pregnancy can alter developmental outcomes such as developing depression and also schizophrenia. And that's primarily what we focused on. And we have found that both stress and inflammation increase risk for the onset of depression and schizophrenia in in the offspring of women who who are experiencing that during their pregnancies. One thing I do want to note is that while we do find these consistent relationships between stress and mental health outcomes and offspring, the 
relationships are, are pretty small in magnitude, meaning that they're statistically significant, but the magnitude of the relationship is small. So for an individual woman that's experiencing stress during pregnancy, the likelihood that her child will develop schizophrenia or depression is still very, very low. So I always like to just throw that out so people understand that when we talk about statistical significance, that's different than what it actually means for a person. And the other important part when we're talking about risk when we are referring to early development is that that's just one time point in a whole life that it's probably just one small piece of, of the puzzle that what could potentially lead to a cascade of other problems, or it could lead to nothing at all. But one of the things that my lab has been focusing on is to try to understand how can we put many aspects of development together to understand the more complex interactions that occur across development and not just one time point. That's really helpful. So that naturally leads to the question, what compelled you to make this leap from schizophrenia to breast cancer? Um, we know breast cancer is a complex disease, um, but I'm really curious how you made that jump. I've been collaborating with breast cancer researchers on a number of my projects related to schizophrenia and depression, partially because we're studying the same cohort of women who are pregnant in the 50s and 60s and their offspring, um, looking at a variety of outcomes, but also because our expertise complement each other, where I have expertise in stress and early developmental risk factors for um, later psychopathology and other health problems, whereas they have expertise in breast cancer and epidemiology and public health. But also, there do seem to be some similarities between these outcomes in the sense that um, we know that there are uh, abnormalities in hormonal functioning and also immune functioning in both schizophrenia and depression. And we also know that early life experiences seem to be related to not only schizophrenia and depression, but also to other health outcomes such as breast cancer. Um, so that's basically how we decided to enter this collaboration to try to marriage our uh, expertise to um, answer some really important questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So a lot of us use the word stress um, in our daily lives. Uh, unfortunately, my children have started to use the word stress to describe themselves from time to time, which is always a shock. But I, I know as a researcher, you have a very particular definition of stress. So what is stress and how do you measure it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. There have been researchers that have been studying stress for a while. Some of the most famous researchers that have studied stress, like Walter Cannon and Hans Selye, started in the 1930s, really understanding how physiological systems respond to danger. Um, however, the word it, itself really didn't start to be used in popular culture until the 80s. And that actually coincided with a lot of researchers that started thinking about more of the cognitive parts of stress or the thought processes involved in stress. How do we look at a stressful event 
and reappraise it? How do we think about it? And I'm, I don't know that that is what led to the word being used in popular culture, but it does seem that the researchers who started studying how we think about stress really that bloomed in the 70s and 80s. And that's when you're starting to see the word used more in popular culture. Um, but I'm going to just give you the definition that's pretty well accepted among stress researchers and then go back to say that it's not always measured in, in the way that I'm, I'm going to define it. But generally, the definition that is pretty accepted among stress researchers been proposed by a researcher called Sheldon Cohen, which was adapted by another researcher, Lazarus. And generally, the definition is stress is a negative emotional experience accompanied by predictable biochemical, physiological, cognitive and behavioral changes that are directed either towards altering the stressful event or accommodating to its effects. Um, so Basically, the idea is that you actually have to feel bad when you're experiencing stress. So that, that's the negative emotional experience. And there has to be changes in the body as well that accompany this, these negative emotional experiences, as well as changes in your thought processes and changes in your behavior that are then directed to either change the stressful event or to try to cope with it in some way. So that's, that's a long answer to your question, but I think it helps to understand how even if somebody might experience the same event that we would all think might be stressful, it's not necessarily stressful to that individual because it has to be accompanied by some of these other changes in thought and physiology. So when people do have that experience of stress and it has these psychological and physiological manifestations, what happens then? What, it, what What's happening in our bodies when we feel stress? So a variety of things are happening that help us mobilize to deal with the stressor that's in front of us. And part of what's happening in our body is managed by a part of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system. And this is a system that is really designed to deal with that flight or fight response that you would experience if you're dealing with a, an active threat in the here and now. And that fight or flight response releases a variety of hormones, such as catecholamines, but also it, it can activate many different things that can help you deal with a threat in your environment. So it helps to increase your heart rate. It redirects blood flow away from the skin towards the big muscles. Um, it also increases the rate and depth of breathing. It even increases your activity in your sweat glands. So all the things that would happen if you're experiencing an, an acute stressor. And in fact, all of these things actually have an evolutionary purpose to it. So if you're heart rate is increased, it actually speeds up delivery of oxygen um, and removes carbon dioxide, redirects blood flow away from the skin towards the big muscles, also helps with your fight or flight response. And it, it makes it so you lose less blood if you're attacked by a predator. If you have increased rate 
of breathing that also increases more oxygen to the muscles and increasing in sweat glands. This is actually kind of interesting. Not only does it help you cool you down so that you can run away from a predator and you're less likely to be exhausted, but it also makes you slippery so that if a predator <laughs> actually grabs onto you, then you're, you're more likely to get away. Also, your pupils dilate. And as I mentioned to you, the, a number of different systems are shut down so that you can redirect all of your energy towards the systems that are necessary to get away from a, a, a predator or to fight the predator. Now, we also have another system that uh, is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis for short. And this is a slower system than the sympathetic nervous system. Um, and this system also is involved in stress, but it takes about 20 minutes to really uh, see results from. And this is a system that releases hormones like cortisol that a lot of people have heard of. It's kind of known as the stress hormone. And this system is involved in shutting a variety of things down that we don't need during the periods of stress, like growth hormone, immune responses, reproduction, bone growth. So overall, you can see that during acute stress, many, many things are happening in the body. But a lot of things are happening in your mind and your behavior, too. We could talk about that later if that's something that you're interested in. But for, for now, just know that there are many, many things that happen during periods of, of stress. And so if there's chronic stress, you can actually see that there could be detrimental effects of some of these processes over time. An area of interest for breast cancer researchers is inflammation because of how it may contribute to the development and even spread of breast cancer. Talk to us about inflammation and stress. Yeah, so stress, we've discovered, and you know, many other people have discovered this as well, that stress has a pretty interesting um, relationship with inflammation. Um, and in fact, acute stress can really mobilize uh, first-line immune cells to be immediately active, including inflammatory responses. And funnily, we actually know a lot about this from studies where they took people who were first-time jumpers from airplanes and <laughs> did <laughs> continuous measurements of uh, blood samples while they were jumping out of planes to get a sense of what the immune system would do in response to an acute stressor specifically. I feel like I have to stop you here. How do you take continuous blood samples from somebody who is jumping out of an airplane? <laughs> yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. They actually had indwelling catheters that were timed to take blood samples during the, the jump. All right. Yeah, it was a pretty impressive study, but we actually now know a, a fair amount about acute stress from one of these first studies that looked into uh, the topic. And what you see is that after the jump, there's really this immediate mobilization of first-line immune responses, including inflammation. And that makes sense because you're jumping out of an airplane. You want to make sure that the parts of the immune system that could help you if you're injured, which you could be injured after jumping out of an airplane, that those, those immune defenses are ready 
to be able to help you in the event of an injury. But the other thing that's interesting is after the acute stress goes away, so after somebody lands from a a jump, for instance, from an airplane, um, you really see that those first-line immune defenses are shut off very quickly. And cortisol, which is a stress hormone, is really what shuts down those first-line immune defenses. So in in fact, cortisol, this well-known stress hormone, is actually anti-inflammatory. And in fact, many people know of a pretty well-used synthetic version of cortisol called prednisone, which is used for people who have overactive immune systems in a variety of different settings, like in autoimmune diseases, asthma, um, various allergic reactions. So in in fact, cortisol is a very potent anti-inflammatory agent. And so the question is, how could stress actually lead to more inflammation if a stress hormone like cortisol actually shuts down the inflammatory response? And what we've learned over time and various researchers have studied this is that if cortisol is elevated persistently over time, you could have something called glucocorticoid resistance, meaning that immune cells actually become resistant to the anti-inflammatory effects of cortisol. So that can lead to increases in inflammation over time if there's sustained chronic stress. So in the short term, cortisol actually will shut down an immune system. It's actually other stress hormones like adrenaline that leads to that initial mobilization of the immune response, and then cortisol shuts it down. Um, But if there's chronic stress, you actually see this resistance to the effects of cortisol and and this slow increase in inflammation over time. Mm. And we know that's really of concern for breast cancer researchers. So thanks so much for explaining that. Oh, you're welcome. It's what I like. (laughs) I want to shift from the the biological um, kind of effects of stress to stepping back and and talking about why we're talking about this. You know, breast cancer action from our founding, you know, our founders refuse to shame and blame women. So often in our culture, we're telling women they're not doing things right. And, you know, with cancer, many people have been told they're, you know, they don't have the right attitude. And really much of our work is focused on synthetic chemicals that can increase the risk of breast cancer and, pushing back on definitions of the environment that really water down that focus on the external. But what we're kind of getting into here is this blurred understanding of environment, which is the ways in which our social, cultural, economic environment can have physical effect. Um, And I do think, again, it's important to distinguish environment from uh, our our bodies. And, um, you know, there's a very frustrating study that defined abdominal fat as the environment, because if you think of the 
cancer's environment as the breast and the breast environments as the body, um, you know, some researchers will then say abdominal fat is the environment for, you know, the cancer. And I, I would push back on that. But I still think these are legitimate topics of study, even if we don't want to call them environment. And I want to talk for a minute about Bob Hyatt at UCSF, who developed a model of breast cancer risk that groups data into four categories biological, which is, you know, what a lot of people think of when they think of the hereditary risk factors for breast cancer, even though 10% of breast cancers have any, you know, association with family history, the behavioral, which is what we're all told, you know, limit your alcohol consumption, exercise, eat right, don't smoke, etc. Um, and, and here, you know, this is that blurry land of kind of yoga and meditation. The physical, which are the synthetic chemicals that I was talking about, pollution, you know, those things, and the social. And so you're really introducing this important fourth category um, to the conversation. How do you think about the connections between these broad factors? Um, in relation to breast cancer or just in general? In life. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot more in my research as a psychologist I think it's very easy to focus on psychological well-being as one of and behavior as primary factors in our outcomes but more and more I've been recognizing that there are a lot of structural inequities that are related to a lot of the health outcomes that I'm interested in the mental health outcomes such as neighborhood level factors, pollution, um, even other types of things within environments like toxicants that are disproportionately affecting certain communities. And these are things that psychologists have not really traditionally talked about, but it's clear that a lot of these environmental factors at either neighborhood levels or community levels or even within homes are are important and we haven't really been thinking about them enough in psychology so generally my feeling also is to separate risk factors into categories doesn't really take into account the complex interactions between these categories and the overlaps in these categories so i don't know that i even like to think about biology and environment as that separate from each mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. um, and we also know that genetics can affect behavior and affect behavior in ways that can increase risk for a variety of, of mental and physical health outcomes. So there, there are really blurry lines between all those categories that I think you were mentioning before. I think that's a really good point, Lauren. And clearly, these different factors um, are interconnected and reinforce each other in interesting ways. One of the things that you talked about that was really surprising to me is something about neighborhood uh, composition. So, you know, my background as a social scientist tends to think that racial segregation is bad. You know, our neighborhoods determine our schools, our public education, our libraries, you know, so much more. And as you mentioned, we know that communities of color are disproportionately exposed to environmental harm. 
But it turns out, I learned from you that living in a racially homogenous community is psychologically protective. You know, it's probably not a surprise, but um, I was struck by that tension between, you know, kind of racial segregation as, as being protective, at least for communities of color in a white supremacist society. So tell us more about that psychological data. So most of these data are, are based on results from studies that were conducted in, in Holland. Um, there, there are some findings that we've published that corroborate these studies, but essentially what has been found is something called ethnic density. So ethnic density is a measure of how many people from your neighborhood are from your own ethnic or racial background. In this study with ethnicity, in the studies in the United States, we've also looked at race as well. But in the studies in Holland, they looked at ethnicity. And what they found was that lower ethnic density, so living in an area where the majority of the people in the area are not from your ethnic background, that lower ethnic density was associated with a higher risk of developing schizophrenia if you lived in a lower ethnically dense area. What was interesting is that if you then broke it down by the type of ethnicity, that the risk was the highest for Moroccans who experienced the most prejudice in Holland, and that you could actually see that the risk decreased depending on how much prejudice uh, the individuals tend to experience in Holland specifically. So as the amount of discrimination decreased, the risk for developing schizophrenia decreased um, in these uh, ethnic dense areas, in these low ethnic dense areas. Now, if somebody lived in an area where it was highly ethnically dense, that seemed to be protective for developing schizophrenia. Um, and now these results have been replicated in a number of studies. And we've also found in some of our studies that experiencing uh, racial discrimination, if you're African-American, is associated with experiencing more psychotic symptoms as well. So it seems as if there are similar results in the United States too. So of course, I'm interested in breast cancer. And I think our highly individualistic culture tends to look at the person as the source of their own problem, you know, and we know that with breast cancer, there's that temptation to blame behavior, you know, people didn't breastfeed and exercise. But there's also a temptation to point to genetics. And I think there's a real fetishization of genetics uh, right now in the US. So yes, African-American women are certainly criticized for diet and lifestyle. Um, you know, there's longstanding history of that. But at the same time, we're told that genetic differences mean black women are more likely to get more aggressive cancers, often at younger ages. And I have really feared that this leads to essentially pathologizing African ancestry, you know, and, and possibly to a kind of apathy, you know, they're just at greater risk, it's just their genes. But you know, you're talking about the ways in which uh, environments of racism and discrimination can impact mental health. And there is some evidence that social environment can change genes. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think we now know that there is an enormous amount that is bad for health in the United States for not only African-Americans, but also 
a number of uh, immigrant populations as well. So one of the things that has been kind of interesting in pregnancy research is that African-Americans have a much higher rate of obstetric complications. So meaning poor birth outcomes, like low birth weight, preterm delivery, higher mortality rates during pregnancy. Women who are from uh, a Latin American background, if they're recent immigrants, actually, even if they are from low SES backgrounds and have a variety of other risk factors, actually don't show an increase in obstetric complications unless they've been in the country for a longer period of time. So there's something about being in the United States. If you're an an immigrant from a Latin American country, that uh, the longer you're here, the more acculturated you are, it's actually bad for your health. And that's not only the case for pregnancy in terms of poor birth outcomes, it's also the case for other health outcomes as well. And so people have kind of interpreted these results as not only the results for um, African-American women, actually, I can talk a little bit about those findings more if you're, if you're interested yeah. in that, but pe- people have interpreted all these results as likely being at least partially due to discrimination. And there have been studies that have directly tested that with respect to um, African-American pregnant women. So uh, somebody that I used to work with, Tian Parker Dominguez, published a paper a while ago showing that African-American women during pregnancy have an increase in many different types of stressful life against events and, a por- and reported stress during pregnancy. That doesn't account for an, their increase in poor birth outcomes, though. What does account for at least lower birth weights is perceived discrimination during pregnancy. So even if there are higher rates of uh, stressful life events and perceived stress, that does not account for the poor birth outcomes. But when you look at reports of perceived discrimination, that actually leads to lower birth weights among women who are African-American. So lower birth weights for their offspring. I just want to note what's interesting about these findings is that African-American women have higher rates of birth complications, even when you look at African-American women who are higher income and higher education. So that does not appear to account for the associations between uh, African-American status and poor birth outcomes. So we're both working on a study that's funded by the California Breast Cancer Research Program. And we'll talk about that in a future podcast. But some early data from that research cohort found that some specific adverse childhood events, specifically parental death, could increase the risk of breast cancer later in life. Talk to us about that study and what it means for your work now. Yeah, so this study, I I actually was not involved in doing the analyses for the study. So this was spearheaded by Pierre Cirillo, who I, who we're working with on this project, as well as Barbara Cohen and, and Nikki Lou Kringbaum. And, um, but 
it was from the cohort that I've worked on for a number of my other studies looking at mental health outcomes called the Child Health and Development Study, which followed 20,000 pregnant women from 1959 to 1966 during their pregnancies. And now we know a variety about the offspring. And one of the studies that looked at the offspring was the three G's study that again, I wasn't part of just follow up specifically, but I know about the results because it's, they were conducted by my collaborators and what they did in the study was not only do they know about breast cancer diagnoses and a variety of other related outcomes, but they also had information about um, the mean density areas of the breast as well. And in addition to that, they were able to find out which of the daughters had lost their parents before the age of of 21 to try to get a sense of early traumatic experiences during the childhood and adolescent periods. And what they found was that the loss of both parents in childhood before age 21 was associated with a four and a half times increased risk of breast cancer in the daughters. If you specifically looked at more uh, aggressive outcomes or more s- severe outcomes, loss of both parents in childhood was associated with uh, an eight and a half times increased risk of late stage disease and a 24 and a half times increased risk of HER2 positive status. So both indicators of more aggressive disease. Uh, so this really gives some preliminary evidence that early traumatic events might be associated not only with breast cancer, but potentially a more severe, aggressive form of breast cancer. Finally, there also was evidence that loss of the mother before age 21 was associated with almost a twofold increase in um, breast density area. So if you actually look at the means, it's about a uh, 20 centimeter squared increase in in density if if the daughters had lost their mother before age 21 which also supports the fact that early traumatic experience might be associated with a with a risk factor for developing depression specifically breast density um so one of the interesting aspects of this study was that the results were not dependent upon whether or not the parents had died from cancer, which is really a a critical piece of this study. So when looking at the cause of death of the parents, many of the parents died from accidents or from other things like heart disease. So it wasn't that the results were due to potentially an increased risk of, of cancer in the family, and that's why the daughters lost their parents, but rather it seemed to be due to the actual loss psychologically or other downstream effects of the loss, because there, there can be many other aspects of what happens after the loss of, 
of parents besides psychological factor. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. Well, again, that really points to the complexity of all of this, um, the fallacy of overly simplistic solutions, and the necessity to kind of do broad, deep, multidisciplinary, multimodal research, and take a systems approach to health justice. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Lauren. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to uh, learning more as we continue to work together. Thank you for having me. I look forward to working more together with you too. There's so much research these days documenting how mindfulness and other techniques can help reduce the experience of stress and mitigate the physical impacts of difficult experiences. Even my kids have learned basic techniques in their public schools, and it's great that more people everywhere are getting some relief through these techniques. But I want to be very clear. We are not asking people to meditate their way to happiness and good health. Everything we've talked about today highlights how stress is a public health and social justice issue. And just like our physical and mental health are connected to each other, both are deeply entwined in our economic, social, and cultural systems. When Breast Cancer Action's founders came together in 1990, they understood that their individual tragedies were part of a larger public health crisis. Our early members were active in women's liberation, black power, queer liberation movements, and other radical social justice movements. They recognized the connections between systems of oppression and believed in transformative change. I sincerely hope that each of us have the opportunity to manage our stress, get enough sleep, exercise, and eat fresh, healthy food. All the things we've been told are part of good lifestyle choices. But you can trust that breast cancer action is never going to tell you that cancer is your fault if you didn't do all of these things. Instead, we're looking at the structural barriers to health justice because self-improvement and coping mechanisms cannot be the foundation of equitable public health policy. Too many communities are living with the financial, psychological, and physical tolls of racism, sexism, ableism, and all the other isms. So after yoga class or whatever we do for our self-care, we need to bring our grounded selves together and organize to dismantle the systems of oppression that are making us sick. Addressing and ending the breast cancer epidemic means large-scale change and we'll be healthier and happier for it. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.